Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So welcome everybody to our morning sit. I recognize a lot of you from yesterday. We had a day-long compassion training. <coughs> and then for the people yesterday, I was mentioning a little bit the practice that I want to guide you through this morning. And then there are others of you joining today. So I'll, you know, kind of explain, go back and explain. Our format for this morning is going to be just a little bit different than usual. Casey said, usually start with about a half an hour of a silent sit and then go into a Dharma talk. But I want to actually explain the practice that I'm going to guide you through in the second half of our time together. So we'll go ahead and start with the silent sit, but it'll be a little bit shorter so that we'll have time for the second guided meditation. So we'll start with about 10 minutes of silence, and then I'll explain the practice that I want to guide you through, guide you through, then we'll have some time for discussion and questions about it, because it might be something a little bit new for some folks. I think some of you, for some of you, it might be familiar. It's a practice that's known in Tibetan as Tonglen, sometimes called giving and taking meditation, and so that's what we're going to be doing for the guided practice, okay? But uh, let's, oh, by the way, my name's Tenzin Choki. <laughs> Sorry about that. I use she, her pronouns. And so I am have known Casey for, I've calculated this morning, 16 years. Okay. We used to live together at a Buddhist center in Santa Cruz, California, and met there in 2006, which turns out to be a long time ago, because <laughs> we're up to 2022. I don't know when that happened. It seems like a blur <laughs> the last 16 years, but Casey very kindly invited me down to be with you all this weekend, so it's really great to be here. So let's go ahead and settle in, and we'll sit silently for about 10 minutes. So settling into your meditation posture with your back straight and your shoulders even. If your tongue is on the roof of your mouth, that keeps you from having to swallow constantly. And then your eyes can either be closed or in a hooded gaze, just slightly open. Your hands can be resting in your lap or in the traditional meditation posture, your thumbs touching right below your navel resting on your knees, whatever's comfortable for you. So with our posture, the goal is to conjoin relaxation with alertness. These two qualities are not contradictory, they're complementary. So we can join the qualities of alertness, which we get with a nice upright spine, as if there were a cord pulling up from the crown of our heads with relaxation, our body, our torso relaxed around that upright posture. And then let's take a moment to just do a body scan. So sweeping through the body, checking for any places of tightness or tension. So starting at the crown of the head and sweeping down, checking the area around the eyes and forehead where we often hold a lot of tension around the eyes. Relaxing the muscle of the face. As much as possible, we're breathing through our nose with our mouth closed. 
Let our jaw not tight or tense, our jaw relaxed. And then relaxing through the neck and shoulders. Relaxing down through the torso. Relaxing the belly, the buttocks, all the way down to the feet. So if you notice any areas of tightness or tension, just deliberately relaxing. And then let's round off this initial settling of the body with three deep diaphragmatic breaths. Really deep inhalation all the way down to the diaphragm. We say that this activates the soothing system of the body, these deep diaphragmatic breaths, the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic nervous system. And then after those three deep diaphragmatic breaths, I invite you to turn your attention to the ordinary sensations that accompany the breath. And you can either choose a wide focus, the full body awareness of breathing, or you can narrow the focus, perhaps focusing on the diaphragm, rising and falling, perhaps the lungs expanding and contracting, perhaps the sensations at the nostrils as the breath goes in and out, or if you have another object of focus, if you've been doing mindfulness practice and you have another focal object, I invite you to just use what you're familiar with or the sensations of the breath in the body. And just trying to stay with the sensations of the breath. If your mind wanders, gets distracted by a noise or a thought or another sense object, the moment you notice you're distracted, just release the object of distraction, return to the sensations of the breath, bringing your mind back over and over again, release and return.
using the sensations of the breath to bring yourself here into your body, into the present moment. Nothing else to do in this moment, but being here fully with the sensations of the breath. Just release and return. If you notice your mind has slipped away, gotten distracted by another object. Just release the distraction. Gently bring your mind back to the sensations of the breath. Relaxing your posture and taking a moment to gently come out of meditation. It's so important, you know, when we're doing these practices that we're just very gentle with ourselves. 
sometimes I think we struggle with our minds when our minds, you know, feel distracted and we struggle and fight and pull our mind back and beat ourselves up and go, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then our meditation practice, instead of bringing us any kind of benefit, just makes us feel terrible about ourselves, like a failure, and like we can't do it. So, you know, the instructions that I've always received is very gently, the minute you notice, Pema Chodron, this uh, Buddhist teacher, she often says, it's like training a puppy, training our minds. And so when you get a new little puppy that's like seven weeks old and you're trying to teach it how to sit and you just push its fat little bottom down and it pops right back up again and you go sit and then it pops right back up again, right? But gently, gently, slowly, slowly over time, but you don't wrestle the puppy to the ground and just scream it and sit and then they're going to have a terrified neurotic dog. So it's kind of the same with our minds, you know. Sometimes we're not nearly as gentle with ourselves as we are, you know, with the puppy. So treating our minds like a seven week old puppy, because that's what they feel like sometimes, don't they? They're just bouncing up and down and all over the place until they get exhausted and just start falling. So, so that's part of the instruction. So what I'd love to share with you today is a beautiful practice, very, very well known in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism taught really, really widely, simple to learn, simple in the instruction, but incredibly powerful technique for transformation, for transforming our minds. So, uh, and what I'd like to teach it is in the context of uh, teaching in Buddhism that some of you might be familiar with. Often it's uh, a teaching known in the Tibetan tradition as the four immeasurables, or in the Theravada tradition as the four Brahma Viharas is the more common way of, of presenting the teaching. And these practices are usually presented as equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, and empathetic joy. And so sometimes equanimity comes at the beginning of the list of four, sometimes it comes at the end, that's a long story. We don't have time to get into that, but it's interesting because sometimes kind of the, the foundation of all the other practices is equanimity or overcoming our strong partiality, our affection for only the people close to us, our indifference to the strangers, and maybe the animosity we feel towards people who are super annoying or harmful. And sometimes it comes at the end and there's this beautiful way that it can correct for the faults in the other immeasurables by including equanimity at the end, it's sort of a corrective for how the others can get out of balance. But again, that's kind of a long story, how the others can get out of balance, how to get them back into balance. But I love this practice that I'm gonna share with you. The Tibetan name, as I mentioned, is Tong Len, sometimes translated as giving and taking, sometimes translated as active compassion practice. So I'm gonna talk about that because it's a way of practicing all four of the Brahma Viharas in one practice, which is totally cool, right? Instead of doing four different meditation sessions for all four of the Brahma Viharas, which we can do, and we, it's wonderful to do also. But this is a way of kind of enfolding all four of those in one practice. So just to define a little bit more, so equanimity, sometimes we call it impartiality. 
one of my friends who's a teacher calls it even-heartedness. Mm -hmm. And I love that, right? Mm -hmm. Impartiality seems kind of clinical and too close to indifference, mm -hmm. right? Which is not at all. So even-heartedness is really nice. And so this one is defined as overcoming that strong partiality that we have, you know, only affection and wishing for happiness for the people that we love, not caring at all about people that we don't know very well. And then that thing, it's uh, in, in Buddhist uh, ethics, we talk about ill will or maliciousness, but it doesn't really mean like plotting murders. It really just <laughs> means like getting off when the annoying coworker has something really bad happen to them, right? That, that I always think that's behind these terrible magazines they sell at the checkout stand at the Safeway, you know, that are full, like, what is it, National Enquirer? I didn't even know that still exists. I haven't even been in a Safeway in like decades, but there always used to be these magazines and it was always just like, movie stars, plastic surgery gone horribly wrong, right? And we're like, did it really? Whoa, her lip, lipo, whatever, when they make the lips look big, there was this one actress and then she did that. And it was just like, and that's on the front page because there's a part of us that sort of like delights in the people we're jealous of when bad things happen or something like it's this weird aspect of human nature. So very normal, we're not monsters that we you know, kind of have that thing. But clearly, you know, in meditation practice, if we're trying to develop universal love and compassion, we gotta get over that thing. Like that's kind of the baseline is really trying to, and, you know, this, this practice of equanimity, it doesn't mean everybody's your best friend and you need to want to hang out and go out. We went to this amazing restaurant the other night, Open Sesame. Okay. Oh, oh my God. Doesn't mean you want to hang out and go out to dinner at Open Sesame with everyone. And it also doesn't mean you can't have friends at all, right? You have to be equally indifferent. But it just means in terms of our wish for happiness and freedom from suffering, right? Even the really annoying people, we do not want to go out to dinner to open sesame and hang out with them. <laughs> but we really want them to have happiness and freedom from suffering. And like equal. And this is a big ask, you know. And when we talk about equanimity practice, my teachers have said it takes months, years, like a long time to really get that even heartedness that we're after. And then on that basis of that, we talk about loving kindness practice, which in this context is defined as the wish for others to have happiness. So, you know, that's the definition of love in Buddhism, which is really interesting because usually when we use the word love, we mean any number of complex emotions, not just the wish for others to have happiness, right? We define attachment in Buddhism as experiencing an object, person, event, even a concept as pleasant, exaggerating the pleasant qualities and thinking that by possessing and retaining it, we're going to have lasting happiness. You know, so for a lot of our relationships, especially our intimate relationships, there can be a mixture of love and attachment. We wish that person to have happiness, but we're also wishing for them to give us happiness 
we're exaggerating, oh, I need to have them with me or else, you know, I'm not going to have happiness. So that's an interesting thing. But the love that we're talking about here, the loving kindness, that some Buddhist teachers just translate the word metta or maitri as friendliness or even connection. I've heard that as a translation is the wish for happiness. So it sort of has a vision of others flourishing. You know, for some people, they find this easy to practice because it has this kind of positive vision of flourishing. And then compassion, we simply define as the wish for beings to be free from suffering. And so for that, and we talked about this, some people were with me yesterday, we talked a lot about how compassion can be challenging because it requires an awareness of suffering before we can wish to remove it, we have to see that it's there, right? So it requires us to not be in denial about the reality. You know, suffering is kind of an intense word. There's an interesting etymology of of the Sanskrit word. Some people, one of my friends just translates it as unwanted experiences right? So any unwanted experience, which is a lot, because sometimes we think of suffering and we just think, oh, heart attacks, bitter divorces, car accidents, right? And you're like, okay, Buddha, you were kind of pessimistic. That's not happening all the time. But how often do we have all kinds of unwanted experiences, like kind of constantly, or it's just too hot, or it's just too cold, or the tea, the coffee got cold, you know, all the things that were unwanted experiences. So, so you know, an awareness of that and then wishing for others and ourselves to be free from that. And then empathetic joy. And this is really my, I think my favorite because that's just taking delight in others' joy, taking delight in others' happiness. And then there's another level, which is taking delight in others' virtue. And that's really cool. Like somebody else does something super helpful or kind or compassionate and you're witnessing that and taking delight in that rather than being jealous of it or, you know, why can I do that? Or, you know, there's a, there's a researcher, a, psych, a psychologist called Jonathan Haidt, and he uh, ha- started his research on disgust and Uh, moral disgust like there's physical disgust when something's rotten and then there's moral disgust when you see someone do something harmful and you make exactly the same face you do with physical disgust like you hear about something horrible and you're like ugh, exactly like when you're trying to get something poisonous out of your mouth so he was researching that and then he realized oh there's a totally opposite emotion and that's the good feeling you get when you see someone do something really virtuous, like an unexpected act of kindness. And so he started focusing on that and he coined this word elevation for that emotion. And I just love that, you know, and sometimes you can watch these videos. For me, it's the animal rescue videos and somebody takes the the abused animal and then they like love them. And then the dog's so happy. That feeling you get when you watch, that's elevation. That's elevation. And it's very akin to this Buddhist idea of empathetic joy, which is one of the four Brahma Viharas. And one of my teachers says, just do that. (laughs) He's like, it's free. It's easy. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is instead of getting jealous when the other person has happiness 
or envious that they're doing something kind that you didn't think to do, just get off on it. So simple. And there's even this math in the Tibetan text that's like this crazy thing of like, if you rejoice in the virtue of somebody with lower spiritual realizations than you, and how do you know that? Like, who knows? But anyway, (laughs) you're supposed to get twice as much good karma as they got Mm -hmm. from doing it. Like you don't have to do anything. There's somebody of equal realizations as you, you get an equal amount. If there's somebody of higher realizations than you, you get half. Like they do all the work and you get half. So you're just like stoked at something the Dalai Lama did and you get half of what he gets from doing the thing. I'm like, that's a good deal. I mean, that's a bargain. That's a spiritual bargain. So I really recommend that thing. And then the cool thing, too, is we're allowed and actually encouraged to also rejoice in our own virtues, right? We were talking a little bit yesterday in this workshop about sort of this weird thing, and we're trying to figure out where it comes from, like the epidemic of sort of low self-esteem and just not even being able to see ourselves clearly, like how much we can see our faults so clearly, like 2020 vision right for our faults and shortcomings and sometimes can't see our our qualities at all or even just be happy about them we're so terrified about being arrogant and unhumble but this practice says you do something good rejoice in your own virtue obviously not to make yourself proud and arrogant and like oh i mean yesterday you know we many of us were in a retreat i led a retreat I allowed myself to feel at the end of the day, like, well, that was a day that wasn't a total waste of oxygen. Like, <laughs> wow, we did. I mean, you know, I'm not like, oh, I let a retreat. I'm like amazing. But it was just like, oh, a day really well spent doing virtuous things. How cool for all of us, right? For everybody that was there, you know, for me leading it. That was, so that we're encouraged to do. And it's interesting that is an antidote, like rejoicing in others' virtues and happiness is an antidote to jealousy and envy. And rejoicing in our own happiness and virtues is an antidote to like self-deprecation and low self-esteem. So we're encouraged to do that too. So that's kind of in, in a nutshell, these four Virtues of the heart, one of my teachers calls them the four virtues of the heart. We call them the four immeasurables, the four Brahma Viharas, the four virtues of the heart. And I like that because then we can kind of relate to the feeling tone of that. And so this practice of Tong Len or giving and taking is a way we can kind of conjoin all four of these together. And so what I want to do is just explain the practice uh, guide you through it and then open up for questions and discussion because sometimes people, you know, it, it is simple, the instructions, but it can be challenging to actually do the practice because it's very, very counterintuitive. And so we'll go through it, you know, and, and, and try and be as clear as possible. So in this practice, when we talk about compassion practice, we say that compassion can really protect us against what we call empathic distress. So in the face of suffering, with our empathy or with our connection and awareness of the suffering that others are going through, that can lead to compassion, a wish to 
free others from suffering and a willingness to take action. So that can be kind of one pathway. Another pathway, however, is what we sometimes call empathic distress, right? So in the face of suffering, we become overwhelmed and distressed. And I think a lot of us have experienced that a lot. I know I have in the last like two and a half years, I remember there was, it was the summer of 2020. I live in Santa Cruz in Northern California. And there was this one day and you might've seen, I don't know if it was happening down here, but I don't think you had as many fires at that point. There was this day that pictures were going all over the world. The sky was just red in the Bay area all day long. Like the sun never rose. And that was on top of COVID and there was no vaccine yet. George Floyd's brutal murder had just happened. Then we were having these wildfires. I think, oh, the election also. Like, I was like, there was something else. Really <laughs> oh, that thing. And I remember this one day when the sky was red and I felt like I just had, and I had to teach two classes that day. And I felt like I had such a mammalian fight or flight thing happening in my body. Like I could not settle. And I'm checking Cal Fire like every four and a half nanoseconds to see if we had to evacuate because like all around was evacuating and I'm like oh my god (laughs) I cannot I mean I was just it's just too much and it was so distressing and I'm trying to like be all chill and teach my classes and I'm like (laughs) 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 and so we can be it can be too much we can be distressed you know And I wasn't able to really, I mean, I kind of showed up for everybody that day, but we were all in the same boat. So we're mostly just kind of trying to comfort each other. So we can't go into that distress when we don't have the resources to cope with the the suffering and distress that's, you know, that we're perceiving, that we're aware of. So it can go to distress and compassion can be really protective against that kind of empathic distress and taking action and there's been some research that i mentioned before yesterday in, during the during the workshop research showing that people who actually try to engage and help are protected against things like ptsd when they're the survivors of natural disasters and really interesting even if they don't manage to actually save someone's life just trying like just showing up And so in the Stanford, I teach the Stanford eight-week class called Compassion Cultivation Training. And so the last step of the meditations in that eight weeks is this active compassion Tonglen practice, because there's some preliminary research showing even if we imagine acting to help, it can be protective, right? So we're not getting on the plane and going to Ukraine. We're not saving the drowning victim. If we have an opportunity, awesome if we can do that. But even in those moments where we feel like there's nothing I can do, I don't know what to do, I'm not qualified to help, right? We were talking a little bit yesterday about like, how do we get from wishing to help and having a willingness to help to actually doing something? But we need a lot of wisdom to figure out How appropriate is it? Am I qualified to help? Am I just going to get in the way? Does the person want my help? 
All of that's a long story, but we can always imagine helping, right? We can always visualize. And then that's what this practice is all about, is imagining giving happiness and removing suffering through a visualization. And there's more and more research being done on these different meditation techniques. And as I said, some preliminary research showing that this can be protective also to just do this practice. And I find for myself, it always gives me the relief of knowing there's something I can do. You know, if I find out something on the news or something with a friend, you know, friend is going through something or going through chemo or whatever, I can always do this practice, you know, of imagining giving them the happiness and removing the suffering. So it's really, really powerful and powerfully transformative for the mind to do this. So I want to pause for a minute and just see if there's any questions or comments at all about Mm -hmm. either the four immeasurables that I was talking about before I actually give the practice instruction itself, because you don't even really know what you're going to be doing yet. But I want to pause (laughs) for a minute because all of that was a lot to see if there's any questions or comments up to this point. And I'll also, if anybody on Zoom has a question, if you just unmute, we'll be able to hear you. All right, so just go ahead and unmute yourself. And I'll also watch the chat in case you'd like to put something in the in the chat. Any any questions? Yeah, Megan. I, based on yesterday around equanimity, bringing up having maybe an aversion to giving love to others, but I noticed for me there was an aversion to giving love to myself. Yeah. myself way below, probably self-protective. But that was something that shifted for me yesterday through some of our practices where I felt that like, whoa, the tenderness for myself or the other. And just that I can only equate it to maybe equanimity, but I just bring that up because I'm, I'm, it, it can go both ways, but I tend to, yeah, is towards me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's part of that thing, that weird cultural thing that often we're the last on the list in terms of our own recipients of compassion. Like we're like, or somehow it feels, I think it feels like self-indulgent or there's also that thing of we, we have, we're not used to receiving. Maybe we've, we haven't had a lot of opportunity to receive. Maybe we don't feel worthy of receiving love and compassion, even giving it to ourselves. I have a friend who's a lot like Casey, is the most willing to help anybody with anything at any point ever. Like I I know if I just called him and said, I need you on the next plane. He lives in Florida. He would be on the next plane. I wouldn't even need to say why. It is so hard to do anything for this guy, right? He will not accept any help with anything. I mean, he is just 100% giving. And so there's times I've known him now, gosh, nearly 30 years. There's times I've been like, oh, let me drive you to the airport. No, no, no. I'll take an Uber. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And I have to literally take him by the shoulders, shake him and go, you know how good it feels to like do things for other people. Let other people feel that good feeling by, um, you know, it's almost this path of, not that Casey's like that at all. He's only like that in the giving part, not in the receiving part, but it's this almost pathological like unwillingness 
And I don't know if we feel that it makes us dependent and weakness or we're just so unused to it. And for me, I mean, I'm kind of a, a black belt, you know, survivor of being this way and in recovery. And as most recoveries are, it's a slippery slope. Like it's really hard for me also to accept. And I go, it just feels like this sort of unworthiness too at the root sometimes too of like, wow, somebody's going out of their way to do like nice things for me. Ah, <laughs> you know, so it's complicated, but I think, and that's something we need to work on and we can do this practice for ourselves too. And I'll explain how that visualization works. It's a little bit like self-compassion can be tricky to create a subject object relationship with yourself as the object of your meditation, but there's some tricks that we can do it with this practice also. Yeah. 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 Anything else from anybody before we get into the instructions? Okay. So the way this practice works, it combines breath awareness with visualization with a conceptual process, right? So there's three different things going on here. And I find with a lot of these practices that involve visualization, it's kind of a way of working with different levels of mind simultaneously. Like we can just be thinking about compassion, we can be thinking about loving kindness, but when we're visualizing, I always think of like Jung and the language of the sub subconscious is imagery, right? Like our dreams are images. It's not like you're sitting there just talking to somebody for hours. It's like all these images and, you know, symbols. And so I think when we add the imagery in with our meditation practices, it's working on these subtler levels of mind as well. So what we do with this practice, we imagine an object of our compassion and loving kindness. It's easier to start with people for whom we naturally feel a feeling of loving kindness and compassion. And then over time, we can start working on objects that are less and less close to kind of grow our capacity for loving kindness and compassion. And the object may be someone close to us that is going through a hard time right now, like that's a good choice for beginners in this practice, or it could be some world event that really pulls at your heartstrings, right? Like you, you know, you'll see, I mean, I saw a picture this morning in my newsfeed of this child in, I think it was somewhere in Northern India, they're having this terrible flooding and she was probably six or seven carrying her toddler brother like chest high through the flooding. And I'm like, wow, right? So it could be something like that that really just opens your heart. You imagine that that object of your compassion seated in front of you, or you get a felt sense of their presence in front. And then you imagine whatever it is that they're going through takes the form of this sort of like dense kind of fog, like there's a density, there's a heaviness. So you're not giving them anything more than what they're experiencing. You just imagine whatever they're going through just takes that form of kind of this dense fog. And then you tune in to your feeling of compassion, your wish to relieve that suffering. And you imagine it, I always like to describe it as an inner pilot light, right? Because we innately have loving kindness and compassion. We imagine it as a little flame, like right in the center of our heart chakra, right? So it's kind of like an inner pilot light. And then you imagine with the in-breath, you breathe in 
that kind of dense fog right into that inner pilot light. But instead of being filled with that suffering yourself, it's like fuel for that fire. So it's just like when you, you know, turn on the propane or whatever in the stove, it transforms into light and heat. The same thing happens with that inner pilot light. So as you breathe in, you imagine your willingness to remove the suffering, right? Which we define as compassion. Your willingness to remove the suffering actually transforms into your love and compassion growing stronger. So with every in-breath, we do a couple of cycles. We'll do it in stages for this beginning practice. When you get used to it, you can do it with each cycle of inhalation and exhalation, but we'll do it in stages. So we'll imagine maybe about 10 in-breaths, bringing in that smoke. Imagine your loved one, they're the object of your compassion being relieved of their suffering and imagining gradually with the 10 inhalations, that light, it might be a feeling of warmth in your heart just expands, right? It just grows like your willingness to remove the suffering grows your love and compassion. You can imagine it filling your torso, <coughs> excuse me, eventually filling your whole body. And then you feel your whole body and mind just mm -hmm. suffused with love and compassion as you're removing it and imagine them freed. So that's the taking part, which actually happens first. That's the compassion piece. And then after having done that, we'll do another cycle of 10, this time exhalations. And you imagine the light going out, that wonderful bright, now it's just filling your whole body. So with every exhalation, the light goes out, giving them happiness, right? And so that's the love and kindness piece. You imagine that light transforming into whatever it is that would give that person happiness, right? If it's something physical they need, they need a place to live. They need, you know, shelter, a new job, whatever it is. You can imagine that light transforming. If it's just mental peace and happiness they need, you just can imagine that light filling them too, right? And giving them peace of mind, ease, calm, all the things that they need, right? So that's the giving part, right? And so the equanimity comes in when eventually in our practice, we're doing it with all beings without exception, right? Impartially. But again, don't go to the hardest case first. Often we want to go, I'm going to conquer my aversion to the horrible, harmful person. And then we want, don't do that. <laughs> right? So gradually, gradually. But it's incredibly powerful practice with a lot of practice and a lot of familiarity. I found it's my go-to when I feel aversion arising. And it might be a public figure that does something really harmful. It might be somebody who's really hurt me personally, whatever it is. And it's my go-to. And it may not work uh, as a one-off thing, but it's so powerful over time, you know, because I don't want to feel that aversion. It doesn't feel good. You know, I don't want it. It doesn't do anything for my own happiness or anyone else's. Sometimes we can, sometimes it can take us a while to have the willingness. We kind of relish. Oh, they treated me so bad. I'm going to hold a grudge for a while. And then you're like, oh, no, that feels kind of icky. Okay, I'm ready to let it go. Right? Sometimes it takes a while and that's okay. But I find this is such a powerful practice when we're willing, finally, to just let our aversion go. 
you know, even with the difficult cases. But I really, really advise you to, you know, just go slow, go easy. And it's also really important because sometimes I had one student and I must have said to her 15 times, you're not filled with the suffering. It transforms into compassion. She was like, I'm not going to breathe in and get filled with the suffering. I was like, okay, I just said it 15 times. Like it's really <laughs> important to keep in mind the transform the transformative part of the practice. Because yeah, who wants to get filled with the cancer? I mean, you might do that for your child if you were a loving mother. You might be like, oh, if I could take on and feel, you know, have the cancer instead of them. For most of us, that's a big ask. So we're not asking that. We're just saying you're growing your compassion and your capacity through this practice. Okay, so I'll guide you through what, oh, and, and then in terms of doing it for ourselves, maybe what we'll do in the practice, where are we? Yeah, we've got time. Maybe what we'll do in the practice is maybe a round with a loved one. We'll do another round with maybe some world event that is kind of tugging at your heartstrings these days. And then we'll do another round with yourself. And so the way you can do this practice with yourself is it's helpful to imagine your future suffering self. So we can create the subject object relationship kind of a little bit with time, right? I For a while, when, actually it was when Casey was living at Land of Medicine Buddha, this place in Santa Cruz with me, I facilitated this, I think it was a monthly support group for women with chronic illness that someone else had started and I kind of inherited it. And so a lot of the people in the support group were women who had had cancer treatment, maybe were in remission for a while. The next doctor's appointment was really scary, right? Every time they go to the doctor for another test, another blood test. So they'd often visualize that future self the morning of the doctor's appointment. They were like, 100%, I'm going to be scared. So I'm going to give, you know, love and compassion to my future day of doctor appointment self, right? So creating a, a space in time that way can work with the, with the future, future self suffering. If you are going through something right now, you can think of just a moment five minutes from now too, or whatever works for you. Sometimes it's tricky, but we can do this practice to actually take away our own suffering and give ourselves happiness too. So we'll do, we'll do a couple of rounds just to practice, and then we'll have some time to discuss how it was. But before we go into that, any clarifying questions now at the moment? Okay, and soon people... Are we good? Okay. I'm getting thumbs ups on Zoom. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Just pipe up and unmute yourself. I don't mean to be ignoring you. It's just, you know, the squares and the people. It's a lot to be to be managing. All right. So let's go ahead and get in our comfortable meditation posture again. <clears throat> With your back straight, your shoulders even. Taking a moment to just settle in. <clears throat> and we won't do a full body scan again, but I'll just give you a moment to move your attention through your body, <clears throat> making sure that there's no 
tightness or tension or constriction in your body. And just settling with the breath for a few moments. And so again, we'll do three rounds of the practice. The first round, I'll guide you very explicitly with the visualization and then give slightly less guidance for the next two so that you can practice at your own pace a little bit. But for the first round, I invite you to choose Someone that you're close to, someone for whom you feel love and compassion. And it can be easier with the practice if you choose someone that you know is going through a hard time. So it could be something physical they're going through. Maybe they got a diagnosis of an illness. Maybe something else is going on physically. Or it could be something going on mentally or emotionally, maybe a struggle in a relationship or a hard time at work. So many people with a kind of ongoing pandemic and all the changes are experiencing depression and struggling mentally. So picking someone that you're close to that you feel is in need of some love and compassion. And if you have a few candidates, just try and pick one person for this round of the practice. And then if you can get a visual image of them seated in front of you, a moment to build up either a visual image or if it's hard to visualize just a felt sense of that person's presence imagining them and their energy here with you seated in front of you And then imagine whatever distress, whatever unwanted experience that they're going through takes the form of kind of a dense fog in their body. So again, you're not giving them something extra, something more than what they're already going through, but you just imagine that that suffering, that unwanted experience transforms into this sort of dense fog.
And then as that suffering and distress of that person comes to mind, tune into that feeling of compassion that you feel for them, for our close ones, our wish that they be free from suffering. Imagine that that takes the form of a bright light, like an inner pilot light, right in the center of your chest, right in the position of your heart chakra. So that warm glow, that inner pilot light that represents your innate compassion, your loving kindness, your care. And so now we'll do the practice in stages. And so for about 10 inhalations, imagine as you breathe in, your breath has the power to draw that dense fog out of that person. And imagine as you inhale, it's as if you had, could breathe in directly into that inner pilot light, directly into the center of your chest. Imagine with each in-breath, drawing that dense fog in. And when it gets drawn into the center of your chest, it transforms just like fuel for a fire. With each in-breath, that inner pilot light just glows stronger, becomes bigger, expands. starting to fill your chest, your torso, eventually your whole body. So we'll just practice like that for a few moments, imagining with each inhalation, drawing in that dense fog and that person's suffering being lifted as you remove it and as it transforms into your own compassion and loving kindness, filling your whole chest, your torso, your whole body with love, compassion, peace of mind. So now imagining your whole body and mind filled with that bright light, that warm glow of love and compassion. Imagine your loved one completely free from their suffering, taking a moment to rejoice in your ability to remove their suffering.
And now for the second part of the practice with this same person, now visualize with each exhalation that that bright light goes out from the center of your chest and gives that person happiness. So whatever it is that would give them happiness, if it's something physical, you can imagine that bright light actually transforming into some kind of physical object, maybe it's housing, clothing, a job, a relationship, enough food, whatever it may be. Or if it's mental happiness and peace of mind the person needs most, you can imagine that bright light filling them, filling also their whole body and mind so that they feel at peace and at ease. So we'll just spend a few moments with every exhalation, just sending that bright light out. Your compassion and love isn't depleted at all with each exhalation. You send it out, but it doesn't mean it's leaving you. It's actually immeasurable. There's an infinite source of love and compassion. And imagine that person becoming happier, calmer, at ease, with peace of mind, becoming filled with that bright light, receiving everything they desire. And then imagining you're still completely filled with love and compassion. That person has peace of mind, everything they desire, taking a moment to experience that empathetic joy in their happiness and in your own virtue of giving that loved one happiness through your loving kindness practice. And then allowing the visualization of that loved one to dissolve back into the space of your mind. And now we're gonna do another round of practice. And this time I invite you to choose among all of the suffering experiences that are happening in the world right now. Could be something close, unhoused people in our own community. It could be something happening in another country. It can be very powerful to do this practice 
when we're feeling distress about something that's happening on the world stage. So if there's something that really tugs at your heart right now, and you can imagine a group of people, it may not be people that you can visualize individually that you know personally, may just be, or it may be like me, an image that I saw in the news this morning. It could be a specific image or a specific group of people. So I invite you to visualize that image, that group of people seated in front of you that you'd like to extend compassion to in this moment. And again, attuning to what they're going through, that compassion that involves that awareness of suffering. And imagining whatever it is they're going through, whether it's a war or natural disaster, homelessness, whatever it is. Again, taking the form in them of that dense fog, whatever it is they're going through. And then with an awareness of that inner pilot light, your own innate compassion, again, a series of in-breaths. With each breath, drawing in their suffering in the form of that dense fog right into that inner pilot light where it transforms into compassion and loving kindness gets completely transformed by the power of your compassion. For a series of in-breaths, imagining that transformation again, the beings being freed from suffering and your own <clears throat> compassion and loving kindness growing. Imagining those people now completely freed of their suffering, your whole body and mind filled with loving kindness and compassion. And now we'll imagine the giving of happiness. So breathing out from your heart, that bright light, imagine it transforming into whatever would those people need, and you can get creative with this one, imagining housing, shelter, 
freedom from disease, freedom from war, whatever it is that would give them happiness, safety, shelter, community, health, whatever it is, with each out breath, for a few moments, just imagining giving the happiness they need. So now imagining those people have received all the happiness they need. Take a moment to rejoice in their happiness and in your practice of loving kindness. And then letting the visualization of those people dissolve back into the space of your mind. And then for our final round of practice, we'll practice with ourselves. So imagine yourself seated in front of you. And it may be that there's something that you know that you're going to be experiencing that you feel some trepidation about, maybe you're not looking forward to, or we all know that we're just gonna have one of those days with our ups and downs. We're gonna have a day that we're experiencing unwanted events or just in a mood or whatever it may be. So I invite you to imagine a replica of yourself, but your future self going through whatever challenges you imagine might be around the corner or just are the inevitable experiences of being human. And then whatever those difficulties and challenges that you're going to be experiencing also take the form of that dense fog. And can you feel the same compassion for yourself that you felt for your dear friends, that you felt for that group of people going through unwanted experiences? 
Again, that inner pilot light, that innate compassion that we have, can we feel that for ourselves? So take a moment to just try and feel that same compassionate connection to yourself by visualizing that inner pilot light. And now again, with a series of inhalations, drawing that suffering that your future self will be experiencing directly in to that inner pilot light at the center of your chest. And imagine that transformation, your willingness to extend self-compassion also grows your own compassion and loving kindness in the same way it did with your dear friend or that group of people. So continuing with a few moments of inhalations, relieving your future self of suffering, growing that compassion in yourself. Imagine that future burden of suffering being lifted from yourself as a result of your own self-compassion. And then imagine that suffering is completely lifted and your entire body and mind are filled with love and compassion towards yourself. Take a moment to rejoice, to feel that joy and having relieved your own suffering, extended self-compassion to yourself. And now the giving of happiness, imagining what would make you the happiest. And imagine giving that to yourself with each out breath, whether it's something physical you need, something emotional, maybe even something spiritual, whatever it would be that would give you happiness with each out breath. Imagining yourself becoming happier and happier. 
your own loving kindness and compassion not being depleted at all, like an endless fountain of love and compassion. taking a moment to feel the happiness and having given yourself happiness for the rejoicing in your own self-kindness. And then taking a moment to just let the visualization of your future self dissolve back into the space of your mind. And then just going back to the breath for a few moments, just feeling whatever sensations are alive in your body, whatever thoughts there are in your mind. moment to just relax your body and gently come out of meditation. We've got some time and I'd love to hear from both the Zoom room folks and the folks that are here in person. There's any questions or any reflections you have on how that practice was? Anything to clarify or reflect how it felt? Did you notice any contrast between the three different objects, the loved one, the group of people, and yourself? You want to share what you're feeling? You're nodding. How is that for you? It was easiest to visualize the first one. Yeah. Um, and then the second one, I had to come up with an image. And so that was a little bit more challenging. And then I noticed um, I've been reading a lot about the chakras. So like for my first visualization it was green light mm. and then the second one actually changed to like blue light oh interesting and then yeah. the, the last one was the most challenging yeah hard to come up with an, an image of myself yeah <laughs> was it just hard to think of a future time that you might be suffering and kind of figure no, that I, out I mean, or did I, you feel resistance to giving yourself no I just um like I could I could picture myself suffering with physical pain mm. So that's what I went yeah. with. And then um, 
it was kind of hard to visual. I don't know, just hard for me to visualize my own, you know, black smoke inside myself. I don't know. Maybe I didn't want to. Yeah. Like yeah. touch the pain. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it is really interesting. And often that's the case that ourselves is like, I mean, for one, the subject object thing can get complicated. And then even though it's just whatever we're going through transforming into that sort of dense, but we still don't want to even think about that. Yeah. So, I think, yeah. I think it was like I wanted to avoid that whole, no, I don't want to do that. Thing. <laughs> don't want to go there. <laughs> no, 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 la, la, la. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then how did it feel to give yourself? happiness was that part easier that half of the step or did or was it the was whole thing it less? was still a little harder because I was like struggling to connect with that visualization but you know I, I did the best I could <laughs> yeah yeah okay yeah awesome I love that and I've actually never heard anybody say that the colors of the light changed with the different objects that's really interesting I had one student in New Zealand this guy from Germany, and he was, this is a long time ago. I don't know, they probably, there's still people into goth, this whole goth thing. <laughs> and so he only wore black. He had his hair dyed like jet black. He had like chains and piercings and the whole thing. And he was hanging out in New Zealand for a while. And so he really wanted to inhale the black smoke, like the black smoke, everything good had to be black. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, whatever, you know, I'm, for me, it's all about golden, warm, yummy. You know? <laughs> like, that works for you, I guess. You know, it's interesting, but it's interesting that you had green and then blue and then, yeah, that it, that it changed. And so we can, you know, I love for this practice and we can be creative with whatever really works for us. There's sort of the standard kind of generic instructions, but to really personalize it. When I was first doing this practice, I was, I was living in India and there were people on the street with leprosy, which is really intense. Like if you're not used to seeing people with leprosy and then, you know, I had to imagine them, you know, getting a warm bath, like somebody to wash their hair. It's really hard to wash your hair when you don't have fingers. Mm -hmm. You know, and I would just imagine them becoming like clean and having nice cold drinks. I mean, usually they'd be sitting in the dust by the side of the road. No water bottles. I mean, they would just be sitting there all day. Like cool drinks, like a warm bath. I mean, it's so simple and it's something we do every single day. It was so easy to imagine that. So we can definitely get creative with the visualizations and make it really personal. And then it's more effective. It's not just this generic, oh, happiness in this weird generic way like what would that person really want and what would I really want and then kind of allow yourself and it's interesting with this practice too we can get clear about what we really want like often we don't give ourselves permission to kind of just sit there going huh what would give me happiness like how much of the time do we kind of allow that visualization and I've noticed for myself when I do this practice Something sometimes will pop up and become clear for me about something I need that maybe wasn't even very conscious. Again, something bubbling up out of the subconscious when I kind of allow myself the space to visualize myself. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting to play with. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else have any questions or anything to share about how it was? Yeah, make it. Uh, I was your blue light the second round I was seeing a plane the mm. first 
ground in my heart and it was like orange yellow and I, I was really it was I just felt so happy by the end of it where just really seeing like wow I really felt could see the person that I love just mm. they were resting so mm. they were like so happy to see them sleeping getting the resting and then the second round it was like for women like on a mass scale mm. and like it turned into this blue light but it's like blue light a really hot flame and I was like man I gotta wow. love this like my hands seeing from that vantage this cloud that was surrounding them and in them and I'm like oh and I, I just saw this huge mm. like it's getting sucked through the sky into this blue flame and I had a challenging with myself it took me a moment I could see my future self feeling bogged down cold full of the fog eyes fogged and but then once I digged in and started lifting that, I realized like, wait, I've been limiting myself. Like, I, why don't mm. I just wish? Like, why don't I remove all barriers from my mind? Why don't I? Why don't I remove like all of the um, feelings of uh, low self worth, like everything? Mm. And then I just saw this pop of like this awakening. Why don't I wish for myself to be yeah. enlightened and awakened? Why don't I see myself mm. like feeling so confident, so self-compassionate, kindness? It was like I've never allowed myself to wish that so deeply. Aww. Yeah, it just wow. moved me. Wow, amazing. I don't have to suffer. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And think that, you know, and if we think if we really care about others and wish to be a benefit to others. Doesn't it make sense that the more we're thriving and relaxed and getting what we need, the more available, like why we think somehow it's not okay for us to like, oh, we're only going to help others if we're miserable. Like, what is that? I mean, like I say, I do blame John Calvin for a lot. <laughs> Which may not be on. Sorry, John Calvin. I don't know if you really meant to have this legacy, but you totally... <laughs> you know, but why we think somehow it's not okay to have our own flourishing. And if we only just think about how that will just increase and spread to everyone else, like, yeah, yeah. If you, I think of something in uh, someone close to me, a family member has said this, um, mm. like, but if I get too, I feel too happy, if I feel too this, it'll be taken. Mm. I will get slammed to the ground wow so don't let yourself that's in right now don't let yourself feel that good because life's gonna oh yeah this practice that's super interesting it's kind of like a trauma like that like oh the next trauma is gonna you know happen around the corner but so it's better to be miserable consistently than a roller coaster ride okay i don't know about that logic like through this meditation I went to the level of like but wait what if my self-compassion so strong and the love so strong yeah. that that doesn't take me down yeah I can yeah that's right openly that's right and I will not that's right be encaged or mm-hmm. whatever it may be shame you know I mean you say and to me like it really helps for me to think of examples of people that are even in really difficult external circumstances, but internally, 
still have this deep well-being, mm -hmm. right? Like that isn't dependent on external circumstances. Like I think you can only have that logic if you prioritize the impact of external circumstances on your happiness. Mm -hmm. And research has shown external circumstances actually have very little to do with our happiness. There's a researcher, positive psychology, she's actually close to here at UC Riverside, I think. Mm -hmm. Sonia Lubomirsky is her name. And she's done this research showing for our happiness, roughly about 50% is sort of a set point. A lot is determined by genetics and that's done by twin studies. Only 10% of our happiness is dependent on life circumstances. And 40% are activities that we can do to increase our happiness. Is like choices that we can make to engage in activities and practices things like prioritizing social connection, things like mindfulness meditation, things like gratitude, you know, self-kindness. Like you never think it was only 10% that was your life circumstances. So somebody who is pushing away happiness, thinking that they're gonna get too used to it and then they'll, they'll be taken away. We have so much agency. You know, we have so much agency over our own happiness and our external circumstances have so little to do. And we need to own that choice that we have to engage in the practices that increase our happiness. I mean, it's just so awesome. 40%, you guys. Mm -hmm. You know, and of course there's debates and the 50% more or less of the set point. And if you have, I mean, both of my parents suffered from depression. So I'm like, oh no, 50%. <laughs> I've got to really focus on the 40% too, you know? So yeah, yeah. I think it's so fatalistic to think, oh, I don't want to even <clears throat> strive for happiness because I'll be disappointed. I'll just stay, you know, miserable. I mean, how sad to have that worldview. Yeah. And even yeah. if it's not always present, but I think that, like you said, the subconscious having an exercise yeah. like this, I didn't even quite realize that was still in me. Like we've all kind of yeah. evolved, and I'm like, oh, well, that's still there. Yeah, yeah, that those <laughs> imprints. I'll that. protect myself from disappointment by never actually even going after what I really want. Okay, it's a large strategy. I don't really recommend it. Yeah. And you know, with the visualization, it's interesting. And some of you may have, I was taught, and some of you may have heard of really complicated visualizations for this. Like my first visualization I was taught was like inhale through the nostrils you know this it's black smoke which we don't do anymore because like who wants to be inhaling the black smoke and then it transforms halfway down your esophagus to a lightning bolt which shatters this dark rock of self-cherishing it yeah I mean it's just complicated and then actually one teacher's was talking about, she's a, she's a psychologist at Stanford and she said, she introduced me to this really simple breathe in and out directly from your chest. And then there's like physiology that goes along with that with the vagus nerve that mm -hmm. if you're in the heart chakra is actually a part of this parasympathetic nervous system, vagus nerve and this whole polyvagal theory. And so there's science behind it. And I was like, 
not only is there science behind it, so much easier than the nostrils and the lightning bolt and the, you know, because you try and teach that to new people and they're like, wait, what's happening now with the lightning bolt and the black rock? Of, and then it's so much more positive to imagine the inner pilot light rather than this hard granite of yourself cherishing that you're exploding with the lightning bolts. It's like, I would really rather think that my inner nature is much more innately kind and compassionate. So the inner pilot light, and in Buddhism, we talk about Buddha nature, which we say is this innate seed of goodness that we're just cultivating. And so, yeah, anyway, if you hear some of those more complicated ones, like I over the, you know, and I've been teaching this for like 20 years, I've really simplified to the one that I taught you today. And it's not just the one for beginners. It's, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that that really works. And then the last thing I wanted to say, because I noticed already we're at time. Gosh, yesterday we had a whole day. I could just go on and on. You know, people ask, does this work? Right? The question comes, does this work? And for sure it works for us. You know, this practice totally works to increase our own compassion and loving kindness. Like I said, so easy to learn, incredibly powerful, you know, simple practice. There was a teacher who used to be really close to here at Tupton Dargay Ling, this Tibetan Buddhist center that's nearby the founder Geshe Gelsen. And he was this incredible learned Tibetan master who had studied, could teach the most erudite philosophy his nickname was the Tonglen Lama because this was the main practice that he taught his students. Even though he could teach everything, this was the main practice that he taught his students because he was like, kind of all you need. Like mostly this practice is what you need. So in honor of him here in Long Beach, he lived right up the street. He was one of my teachers. So this practice, so does it really work? totally works for us. And then there's an interesting thing too, in a Buddhist, a Buddhist worldview, we say that we establish karmic connections with people. When we're on the Bodhisattva track, we're wishing for full enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. We say that on the path, we're always wishing with any connection that we make with a being, may I show up when I'm an enlightened being and help lead you to enlightenment, right? There's this beautiful uh, uh, guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, this beautiful text that's studied often in the Tibetan tradition. And there's this verse that says, even if you give a crumb of bread to a bird, make a wish that through that, even a simple karmic connection like that, that you'll have the karma to be able to lead that person to enlightenment. And so I always think, wow, if you're doing Tonglen practice with an object of compassion, you're making such a powerful karmic connection. And then people go, but how do I know I'm going to lead them to enlightenment? Maybe they're already a Buddha just manifesting as a suffering person to increase my <laughs> compassion. They'll be stoked that you're making an aspirin. If they're an enlightened being and you're saying, may I lead you to enlightenment? They'll be like, I'm already there, but I'm so stoked that you're actually making that wish and having that aspiration. And in addition to that, you know, like I said, I'm from Santa Cruz, California, a hippie surfer college town. I'm allowed to talk about vibes. <laughs> and I think there's that aspect also. Like, I think it can transmit, you know, our well wishes. I read once there was this study that was done 
this is long ago. And it was like people going through surgery. And then they studied people whose like sister-in-law's like Southern Baptist prayer group was praying for them while they were going through the surgery had way higher success rates Mm -hmm. from the surgery than people. And they didn't even know it was happening. Like that's the thing. They didn't even know this, their sister-in-law's prayer group was praying for them. They had higher rates. So just saying, right? Like that's pretty good evidence that, and I have, uh, I'll leave you with one final story about my own experience. And so, you know, there's always the nemesis and the really difficult object of compassion for us. And so for me, for many years, it was a former family member, an ex-sister-in-law of mine. She may be listening to this. She knows the whole story. It's okay. We're recording. She knows, (laughs) you know, and there was this thing that happened in my family that sort of split my family apart and I really blamed her. So whenever I thought of the really hard case for me of extending compassion, you know, it was really hurtful what happened. And it was like, in my mind, it was all her fault. And so when I started doing this kind of practice, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. She's way out there. I'm going to start gradually, but at a certain point, it's like, okay, I'm going to try and do this practice with her. So I try and visualize and try and, it was just like beating my head against a brick wall. I wasn't feeling anything. Nothing was moving. I was just doing it, wrote, but I trusted the practice. I really trusted the practice. And I was in this remote retreat place in this hermitage in central California. This had been years. I hadn't seen this person in 16 years. I hadn't been doing the practice for 16 years, but I'd been doing it for years. And again, brick wall, nothing happening. Then one day, I just felt this softening. It was almost like this physical experience of softening and like the light was going out and there was this warmth. And suddenly I just understood everything from her perspective and everything shifted. And I was just like, Oh my God, finally, like after literally years of practice, check it out. A week later, I get a letter from her out of the blue after 16 years, apologizing to me about this thing that had happened. And so after that retreat finished, I like looked her up. I like found her and went actually went to visit her. And I was like, what was that all like? For one, I was like, how did you even find me? I'm at this remote hermitage. She's not even married to my brother anymore. It's like, how did you find me? She goes, oh, I always remembered your teacher's name because it was so cool, Zopa. Zopa. She goes, it was like Zorro or something. So she calls the international headquarters of my teacher's organization. They're like totally not going to give her my address because what if she's a stalker? But it was a post office box of the hermitage that was like 15 miles down the road. So they're like, okay, that can't hurt. Even if she stalks the post office, she's not going to be able. So they give her the post office box. And I go, what happened? She goes, I just felt something shift after all these years. And it was literally wow. right after. So that's my advertisement. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff really works. Like, swear to you, that happened. So I'm I'm a believer. If I worked before then, I definitely was after that. Yeah. So thank you all so much for being with me this morning. It's been so fun to hang out with you guys in Long Beach this weekend. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Mm. Stay safe.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Zoom people. <laughs> Thank you for joining. Hope to see you again. Bye-bye. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.